Now, uh, welcome to the uh, latest History on Head School, as I said. Um, I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine, and I presume you're all uh, subscribers. I won't uh, labour that point. Uh, now, tonight we are going to discuss Ireland, the United States, and the war at sea, 1917. Uh, 1917 was a pivotal year uh, of the First World War. At its outset, German U-boats were inflicting huge damage on Allied shipping, while in the land war, the loss of one ally, Russia, was not compensated by the gain of another, the United States. So how did the Allies swing the balance uh, in their favor by the year's end, particularly at sea? How central was Ireland, uh, and Cork in particular, in this conflict? Uh, so we've uh, assembled a, a stellar panel here, uh, Michael Kennedy of uh, the Royal Irish Academy's Documents on Irish Foreign Policy, uh, Jennifer Wellington to my left here, uh, lecturer in UCD, uh, on the right, uh, John Borgonovo of UCC, and finally, uh, Michal, uh, I was going to say Michal Martin, Michael Martin. Described <laughs> <laughs> as local, you're, you're a dub though, Michael, aren't you? Originally. Originally. Very, very ecumenical of us down here. Uh, Michael is Michael Martin as well. Now, Jennifer, um, yeah, oh, just to, just to, just to uh, make it clear, um, this, is a, this is a school, you know, you're, you're, you're expected to do a little bit of work, and I'll be going to the audience uh, about halfway through, looking for any comments or, or questions uh, that you have. And my advice would be get in early, because when these discussions get going, it's very difficult to get in edgeways <laughs> with, the, with the panelists we have uh, assembled here. Um, and the other thing is, uh, this is being recorded, uh, and it will be podcast, on our website. That's provided nothing libelous is said on the night, so just bear that in mind. Um, now, Jennifer, could you give us a, paint us a picture of the broader strategic situation in 1917? Because it was still a 50-50 war, a 50-50 game, if you like, at this stage. So just give us a picture of oh, what's right. happening. Well, in early 1917, um, you know, so the US enters the war, they declare war on Germany um, in early April 1917. So by this point, you know, the war's been going on since August 1914. There's been an awful lot of blood and treasure spilt. And if you think about the year 1916, we have some incredibly destructive fighting happening. You know, the Battle of the Somme, which you may know about, Verdun, in both in France, um, and also uh, really destructive fighting um, um, on the Eastern Front between the Russians and the Germans. Um, and then you have, in winter 1916-17 is an extremely cold, extremely difficult winter. It's known as the turnip winter in, in Germany because people are basically, that's what they're eating because they don't have other food. Um, so it's this they're a really you know, cold, intense suffering, worst winter in 40 years. Early 1917, what are we talking about strategically? Well, um, we basically have a complete stalemate and an impasse on both sides. Um, the war's not really going anywhere. The battles that have happened are inconclusive. A lot of people die, but nothing really happens um, in terms of shifting the strategic balance from one way to the other. And you also have this, the logic of total war, which um, basically dictates that um, you can't stop now. Because if you stop now, you are giving up all the people who've died and all the things that have happened beforehand. So there's this logic that you just have to keep going, and there's total commitment. But at this point, like, it's very clear that the defensive warfare is superior to offensive warfare, so any, um, people, are, people are digging in. So what's going on in early 1917? Well, first thing that's happening is one thing is that, and we'll get into this later, is Germany recommences unrestricted submarine warfare. And that means they're using U-boats to hit all kinds of shipping, um, including um, merchant vessels and um, you know, neutral shipping. Um, 
So that's the first thing that's happening. The second thing that's happening in early 1917 is that um, there are plans afoot to, uh, <laughs> to create, um, to attack. Um, there's this idea that well, we have to break through. So even though defence is stronger, there's still an idea on the part of the Allies that we have to have large attacks and we need to break through. And this happens in April, actually, um, and in March uh, 1917. So one thing that's happening is the French are planning a huge attack at a place called Chemin de Dame. And um, this is so controversial that in March 1917, the French Minister for War resigns because this is such a bad idea and he's replaced. So there's a huge controversy going on in France. At the same time, um, the, the, uh, the Allies are planning attacks further north, and this includes the attack at Vimy Ridge, which you may have heard about the centennial very, really recently, big Canadian battle, that's in April. What else is going on at the same time? The Germans are in the process of planning to retreat to the Hindenburg Line. So they basically, there's a really wibbly-wobbly front all through the Western Front, and they say, well, it's really hard to defend a curvy line, so they retreat to a straight line. And, to, and they build these defences, like rows and rows and rows and rows of trenches and defences. So they're doing that at the same time. And at the same time, they plan to use U-boats to pressure Allied shipping, and they hope that the two things together will help them to win the war. Um, at the same time, also, you have the first of the Russian revolutions in early 1917, and you have the resignation of the Tsar and the provisional government in Russia. So that's going on at the same time on another front. And also the Allies are fighting in, um, against the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East at the same time. And so you also have um, the fall of Baghdad in, in early 1917 as well. And then by December, that is when um, the, it's called the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, but it's a large British and colonial arm, army by December captures Jerusalem. So there's a war on that front, there's a war at sea, there's a war on the Western Front, uh, and then there's... Um, also, the war in the east, which grinds to a halt. So it continues through 1917, um, with the, and the Russians keep fighting until the October Revolution, and that's when all of that stops um, in, in late 1917, and then they begin to um, formulate a peace treaty with the Germans. Is that enough of what yeah, happens no, in 1917? Okay. I, I can keep minutes. going. There's Caporetto in just, October, just, too. But just make one point. <laughs> it, it isn't a total stalemate on the sense that the, 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 the Germans make huge advances on the eastern front, and eventually Russia is knocked out of the war. Right? So, Superficially, it looks bad for the Western Allies. You'd oh say. yeah, things yeah. are looking yeah. pretty bad in early 1917. Yeah. Things are not looking happy. Yeah, because I mean, the, the, one of the problems always with history is to see things in hindsight, you know, because you know what you know what's going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's, it still looks it looks very dodgy, right? Now, Michael, can I bring you in here just on more detail on the the war at sea? Um, just before we, we get on to the American uh, entry, what's happening up to that? In 1917. Indeed, in late 1916, there's a ferocious war at sea going on around Ireland, and it's a war we've forgotten about. I think the, the Battle of the Atlantic and the First World War and the Second World War seem to have merged in together. Maybe Das Boot and other uh, you know, series are to blame for that. But if you segregate the First World War and you look at what's happening around Ireland, 1916 is quite a quiet year in, in the war at sea, but then with the introduction of unrestricted submarine warfare, and the second time Germany does this, uh, and indeed slightly before it, probably around Christmas 1916, U-boat attacks off the southwest coast of Ireland begin to increase. And I'm sure you know, you know living where you do, that we're living on a maritime superhighway off the south and the southwest coast of Ireland. We're on the cones of approach from the British imperial trade routes into the Irish Sea, into the narrow seas of the channel, and it's a perfect place for a U-boat to wait 
and uh, wait for passing merchant shipping. And what's happening in the spring of 1917 is the U-boats are in the ascendant. And if you're looking for turning points or potential turning points in the war, this is one of them. Britain is within weeks of defeat by March, April uh, 1917. Just just before you develop the the U-boat thing, just to make it clear here, apart from U-boats, so the Germans don't have anything at sea. their, their fleet is bottled it's up, bottled just up to make that clear. Yes. So, so the only thing on, uh, on the surface mm. is allied shipping yeah. and, and, and merchant shipping. And, and the U-boat, which is a, a new technology, it's seen as being perhaps... Invented by an Irishman, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. An ungentlemanly technology, that this is um, not a civilised way of dispatching merchant shipping. But if you want to starve Britain into submission, Uh, which is what the Germans are intending to do, blockade and counter-blockade, this is the way to go about it. And so off the Irish coast, 1917 in the southwestern approaches, and then to skip forward a little, 1918 in the Irish Sea, U-boats are rampant. And the whole concept, without jumping ahead too much, is how do you counter the U-boat? You know, Britain doesn't have the technology to do this. And then to, to bring it maybe to specific local issues, I've been doing a lot of work on the Uh, the archive of the Commissioners of Irish Lights up in the Bailey Lighthouse in Dublin. And they have the lightkeeper's view. And it is chilling, it's fantastic, it's uh, appalling in many ways that lightkeepers, um, Hookhead, for example, watches a boat, uh, a clipper go down in a matter of seconds. Uh, There's a a launch, hits a mine in the mouth of Waterford Harbour, and say, well, we only got one survivor from it. Uh, Another, and mines are a constant threat. Uh, another uh, ship hits a mine and uh, eight men are killed on it and the note by the, the lightkeeper is there wasn't much fuss made about it. So the nature of the, 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 the uh, attack upon attack, the amount of flotsam that's in the water, dead bodies washed ashore, uh, pools of, of oil spotted on the surface, uh, it is when you look at the individual, the human side of war, uh, not to, I mean, to kind of denigrate the grand strategies you were talking about, Jennifer, but, but look, at the, look at the individual cases, look at the, the deaths of uh, men and women in the conflict, and the Irish coastline, the southwestern approaches, those critical theatres in the U-boat campaign are, I think Churchill calls them, a cemetery of shipping in 1917. And it really is a close-run thing during the year, whether Germany is going to tip the balance or not in its favour and the Admiralty are very aware of the amount of merchant shipping they are losing week upon week, and they know that they are soon going to be in a position where there will not be enough tonnage available to keep uh, Britain and Ireland properly provisioned. Uh, Grain supplies are down, oil supplies are down, uh, and it is, from a strategic economic position, looking very bad for Britain. Uh, and indeed for Ireland. And, and one of the arguments, that you're trying to stop me, tell me, but... No, I, I, what, I want to ask a question, yeah. sorry, mate, before yeah. you get to the, the, that point. Yeah. The term unrestricted U-boat warfare mm. is used. What was restricted U-boat warfare? Um, I mean, no, I mean what, what were they doing before this? Well, I, I, to define it, that you, you stop mm. a ship. U-boats attack on the surface. They're not attacking by torpedoes. You stop the ship, you tell the captain, abandon ship, I am going to sink your vessel. You have time to take to your lifeboats and you can go off and then I'll use my deck gun to dispatch your ship. But there's ne- neutral, this. neutral shipping is, is let go, yeah. yeah. That's the okay, big thing. So, so, American, like, so neutral shipping mm. is, and neutral ships painting themselves, mm. like, you know, big flags, like big, 
yeah. Norwegian mm. flag on the side, and, nor yeah. and neutral shipping wouldn't be wouldn't be attached. And they're safe. I mean, yeah, yeah. more or less. You're, you're looking right. at a period where there's attempts to kind of codify the rules of war. You've got the, the Hague Conventions on neutrality of the first decade of the 20th century, and and neutral is able to to trade, yeah. have commerce, etc., with belligerents. So that's the more gentlemanly way. People still die, which is the thing you've got to bring into it. I just want to jump back in time here, bring you in. Uh, Michael Martin, there seem to be two Michaels in the panel, it is going to be difficult. Michael Martin, if I, I use your, for, your full name just so, so we, we know who, who's talking to who here. Michael, because let's just go back two years before this because of course you, you've, uh, you've written a book on the sinking, sinking of the Lusitania. Mm -hmm. Now, if ever there was a reason to bring a nation into war, that was it. So how come the United States didn't go to war in 1915? And, and why was it sunk? I mean, was it unrestricted? U-boat warfare then, or was this a one-off? No, uh, the unrestricted also referred to the fact that um, they, they, they deliberately set out to target uh, belligerent vessels. So the countries with whom they are at war, if you were sailing on a vessel under that flag, well, then you are standing yourself into danger. And the Germans put um, advertisements in American newspapers warning people, you know, if you're, we're going to be targeting uh, the flags of our enemies or ships under the flags of our enemies. And therefore, um, that was the site of restricted warfare. They were never going to be really able to engage in the sort of conventions that had been tried before. They had tried to organize a London convention uh, before the war in 1909, where there would be a gentleman's agreement as to if a ship sank, what would be done, and so on. Uh, it was never signed off on, you know, it was never signed off on. But what Germany found themselves in a situation where they couldn't get their fleet out of the North Sea. Um, some German people would refer to that blockade as the starvation blockade because not only were, was the blockade successfully stopping German shipping getting out, naval shipping, but it was also preventing uh, food sources getting in. And some would refer to it as the starvation blockade. A British study done a few years ago would show that the calorific intake of food for German citizens during this period was half of what was the normal. So they were in a situation where they couldn't use their fleet uh, to break the, the blockade effectively. So the submarine was the weapon of choice. Uh, they could get past this fleet. And on the other side of it then, Great Britain, uh, it was the greatest conflict in history, the highest use of munitions and so on. And there was so much being used by Britain that she couldn't keep up with her own production. She needed to be able to get resources in from America and from elsewhere. So unfortunately, it was civilian shipping that she was using to do that. And um, so Lusitania was, was carrying munitions. And you know, there was... Is that, is that a, the consensus? Absolutely. I mean, I have one in my back garden. You know, they, they recovered them. Um, there's absolutely no doubt about uh, the fact that she was carrying that, munitions. That was denied at the time. Uh, it was happened. denied. And it still hasn't been admitted. But we now know from... It's come out very clear in treasury files, I think. Yeah, know, yeah. The money trail is always the way to go. I yeah, think. and I mean, invoices from the munitions company, um, the, the manifest that got lost for a few years, they, they have a draw there now. And um, there's a camera has been into the, into the hull of the ship uh, three years ago with National Geographic that, you know, saw thousands of 303... Um, cartridge rounds there. Um, but she had done it before. It wasn't Lusitania's first time to, to, to carry munitions either. It was a, a kind of a regular occurrence. Does that mean it was a legitimate target? Well, it, you know, in any conflict, 58 tons of munitions that were being brought to be used against, you know, German soldiers and civilians would have been yeah. a legitimate target. The complication, of course, is that the legitimate target is surrounded by innocent civilians. Yeah. And the sort of language that we'd use nowadays would be, human shields or collateral, all sorts of phrases. Yeah. But there's no doubt uh, now that there were munitions on it. And, you know, 
there's a whole question too that I think we'll come to later about the use of Q-ships and how that would have changed the approaches of the, uh, of the, the German Navy towards civilian vessels because they weren't a new thing. But the, about not bringing the, uh, the United States into the war, first of all, it wasn't the first ship that had been sunk with American citizens on board. There had been one uh, off Liverpool uh, earlier on, uh, and there was one place quite close to the Lusitania not too long afterwards. But it's not a question of a single incident. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson was vehemently against uh, intervention in this war. Uh, he, he would have said, uh, this is a war between European families almost. What are they fighting about? Uh, and all wars will come to an end. He, he wrote about this. He said, all wars will come to an end. And what the world needs is an honest broker to bring them peace and to negotiate the peace later on. Um, he was often you know, described in, I suppose, the propaganda uh, that went on at the time as being not really understanding what was going on. He understood fully what was going on. He'd written about the American previous wars and did not want to get his country involved uh, in a conflict that had nothing to do with them. Uh, so there was no real question, uh, I think, at that time in the mind of President Wilson about going to war. Did, did the Germans pull back, though, from all-out U-boat uh, war after the Lusitania? Well, there was a pulling back and there was a promise made that there were certain ships that they wouldn't target, you know, but there were a number of incidents not long after the Lusitania and uh, the German high command said that, well, we've disciplined the officers in charge of those submarines, but in reality, was there a pulling back? Um, just a little, I'd say. Right. John, can I bring you in here then? If the Americans didn't go to war in 1915, why did they go to war in April 1917? Part of it was, was uh, I mean, could you simply say because Woodrow Wilson had been elected, say well, that's, elected that's part a few of it. months before? That's part of it. I mean, he gets elected in, in November 1916 on a, he kept us out of war platform. Uh, and so, then he kind of so turns. So then he goes to war. He goes to war a couple months later. Uh, so th I, think the, I think when you think about the, the First World War, you know, it's not really fought for any good principle other than everybody involved wanted to be considered a major global power. And so they all fought to defend their, their status as a major power because Europe at that time was the rule of the jungle and it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and if you're not a major power, you're going to be gobbled up. The Americans felt that they weren't being treated like a, by, as a major power by German uh, attacks on its neutrality. And so there's a, a, a status there. There's also a lot of financial links. Um, the Americans are, are, are very heavily involved They're in terms of American capital and American industry in the war effort. There's uh, a tremendous amount of sympathy, not just for Anglo-American relations, but American-French relations, because France was America's great ally. And France had gifted the Statue of Liberty to the United States. And France had won the American War of Independence. So there was already a, a pro-allied approach. But when the German submarine policy changed and they started to attack uh, American flagged vessels, regardless of the fact that they knew they were American flagged, regardless of American protests, the government felt that it had to act. Um, that, you know, that was a controversial decision and there was a lot of opposition to the... Why, the, why did the Germans do that? I mean, in a way, it, it seems like a, a very, very stupid uh, policy to deliberately provoke a, a huge state like the United States in, into war. They didn't think that they, they uh, were... The, they were they, sure, they, they basically, as, you know, as we heard before, it was 
they were really desperate for an alternative. So desperation. They were, they, were desperate, they were desperate to change the equation. So they decided that they would kind of roll the dice. And in 1915, when we talked about these attacks on Lusitania and, and um, the Arabic, was that the other one? Oh, the, yeah. yeah, which also went down off of Cork Coast. Um, the Germans had done a huge amount of damage to British shipping with only a few U-boats. I think they had maybe 10 U-boats at sea. And the, the Germans hadn't, it's not like the Germans were the big submarine force of the world. They had about the same size of a submarine fleet as, as the Royal Navy, as the American Navy, and what have you. But the submarines were hugely effective. And in a few months in 1915, they sank something like 8 or 10% of British merchant shipping. So they, so they, they kind of gambled that if they built a whole lot more submarines and didn't bother trying to divvy out the neutral, neutrals from the belligerents, they also thought, to keep in mind also, that a lot of British um, needs were serviced by neutral countries, especially like Norway. Like Norway had a huge merchant fleet. Like 10% of the world tonnage was Norwegian flagged. Um, so one of the gambles was that if they attacked all shipping going into uh, British and Irish waters, that neutral shipping companies would no longer allow their ships to be chartered for use in Britain. So you didn't have to sink all the ships. You could just have, you could disrupt it so much. And Britain as an island nation was totally dependent on, uh, on raw materials and materials being brought in. So you can completely disrupt them. Um, so it was a gamble. And they, they kind of, the, the German Admiralty kind of, you know, promised famously, you know, in six months they could, they could bring it about the war. And they almost did it. Uh, but... Uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So. No, no, I tell you, I want to. Can I think yeah. it's very exciting too that um, you know the, the American um, military logistics weren't ready for war. Right. I mean, I think Germany would have would have, would have been aware of that, and even after they did enter the war on the sixth of April, uh, it wasn't until January of nineteen eighteen that they had the logistical capacity to get large number of troops. So that might have been in the minds of yeah. escalating. Yeah. yeah. Basically, I've got some stats on that, effectively, that in mm. April 1917, when the US entered the war, their army is ranked behind that of Portugal. It's that bad. Um, they have no tanks, they have no fully equipped divisions, they have no experienced commanders, and they have no modern training system, and they have a total of 55 aeroplanes. And that's what they have when they enter the First World War. Um, and they also have endemic organizational problems. They have also endemic corruption in the arms industries, and so it's completely inefficient, and they can't necessarily get all the things that they need. And it's so bad, the military was so unprepared for war um, that Senator um, Finance, the Senate Finance Committee chairman, who was a guy called Thomas S. Martin, is a senator from Virginia, and um, basically the arm, uh, army major requested military funding at this point and his response is, good Lord, you're not going to send soldiers over there. Uh, you're like, so that, you know, it was just like, what? No, 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 no. Um, so when the US is initially contemplating war, they're actually thinking that it's going to be a naval and financial contribution because their military is that unprepared. Um, what and about the yeah, Navy? What, what's, the, what's their naval yeah. capacity at this stage? I think it was only reasonable at that stage. Um, but I think, uh, to go back to your original question, I think the two primary factors in influencing the end of the war uh, was the threat to American citizens when they announce unrestricted warfare, when Germany announces it um, in March of that year, you now have a direct threat against American citizens. 
uh, on any ocean, under any flag, anywhere. So that's a direct threat against our citizenry. And then there's the whole Zimmerman affair, where it appears that there's a threat to American um, terra firma. And the Zimmerman affair supposedly is an intervention that sees Germany uh, offering support to Mexico for safe haven, um, in return for which they will recover those lands that Mexico lost in 1868. In other words, California, Texas, Colorado, and New Mexico. And I take that very personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in terms of militarily, uh, so what the Americans do have is they have a pretty good navy. They're kind of like they're kind of like high second division. You know, like the the Royal Navy is the gold standard. And the Americans don't have something like that. They're not, their navy isn't as good as the German navy. But it's pretty good. It's, it's a pretty good, but the big thing is it's a modern navy. And one aspect of the navy that is, <laughs> is very strong is they have these new small vessels called destroyers that are used to kind of chase off uh, torpedo boats. And destroyers are fast. Um, they're kind of lightly armed. But they're good, sturdy ships. And they're actually perfect for escort duty and convoying duty, which is, wasn't, wasn't what they were designed for, but it's, they, they could be applied to that. And the Americans had a new, modern, oil-burning fleet of these destroyers, and that's gonna be kind of the key to the whole uh, use now, here. And presumably, the naval capacity can be delivered immediately. This is the key thing, as opposed to- Within 14 days. Yeah. Right. Within yeah. 14 Just days. before I get into that, right, I wanna go back to you, Michael, right? Uh, just, you know, even before the Americans entered the, the war, right? What did the British, the Allies, do to counter the submarines? What sort of tactics were developed? There's very little in the way. I think it's Admiral Sir Lewis Bailey up here in, in Admiralty House, when he's appointed in, in 1915, he doesn't have the tools of the trade. He has uh, trawlers, he has drifters, he's armed yachts. He calls it a Gilbert and Sullivan Navy, is what he's, he's given. The you know, flower sloops. Yeah. All the sloops yeah. named after flowers. Yeah, the yeah, that's, well, they're, they're better than nothing. You know, they're eventually provided, but he doesn't have the modern equipment mm. that the Americans can send to the old world on their rescue mission. And you were talking how, about how, Wilson how, and... How uh, do you take out a submarine you, you take it out in those with, days? You, you, they're normally on the surface. Okay. So if you have um, torpedoes or you have four-inch naval guns, you can, you can get them. But they have to be on the surface depth before you can get them. I uh, know, depth charge. And, as, but, as, but, but the depth charge yeah. was only invented in 1916. Mm. So that's what I'm getting at, you see, so that they're making it up as they go along. But this, right? this whole submarine war is new technology. Right, it is. right. And, and even the destroyer tactics that Bailey is using when he's a commander of, of Irish waters or Western approaches, he is one of the, the first people to develop them. So it's, it's a very new Stop type it, of Sorry, just it, 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 intervention, idiot question. I put a special red light up here. Mm. What's it, what is a, a battleship, mm. a cruiser, a destroyer, <laughs> a patrol boat? I know what a U-boat is, yeah. right? So just I, fill me in. The, at the top of the, the level, if you like, you've got your aircraft carriers and your battleships. And on the bottom of it, you've got what the, the Irish Navy operate, patrol vessels. And then in the middle, you've got the destroyer, really above the frigate, above the, the corvette. But it's, as, as John was saying, it's fast. It can... Um, escort capital, the capital ships, the aircraft carriers, and the battleships. So it can work its way around the battlefield, the naval battlefield. It can move quickly, and that's what, one of the what, big changes here. Just a quick, yeah. quick question: What are battleships any good for, apart from you know being targets? I mean, the, these huge, you, big, you know, you've seen the decline things. in well, the they battleships. Didn't really, they didn't really have yeah. the aircraft. The aircraft carriers okay. coming a little bit later. later, later yeah. But so, the, and battleships the same thing as a dreadnought. So a battleship has these big, huge guns, like 14, 15 inches, that can shoot about 25 miles and can deliver, shoot, the, a, a size, a big battleship shell would be about the size of this table. 
and uh, about as heavy as a Volkswagen Beetle. So it's a hell of a lot of shrapnel coming, at, coming your way. So a big battleship can blow up a lot of things. But you're looking at it as a duel, as a, a between battleships. Uh, yes, exactly. You're projecting your national power through, say, your HMS Hood in the Second World War mm -hmm. against Bismarck, and who'd, you know, who'd, who'd lose in that. The Battle of Jutland in the First World War is like that. It's the, what is it? Yeah, but I mean, what's you know, what's wrong with our bloody it, ships is today? It, it, the, it, 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 sorry sorry, sorry, you know, sorry for this yeah. I'm just <laughs> fascinated by this. The thing about battleships is they cancel each other out. They just pound mm -hmm. each other. Like, yeah. there's no strategic advantage, really, at the end of the day. And and unless unless your battleship is bigger than the other guy's battleship. They're better in peacetime. But the Germans had, in Jutland is in 1916, the Germans had, a, had the Germans had the second biggest fleet. They finally came out and they fought the, the big Royal Navy fleet, and they just went hammer and tongs at each other. But the Germans had to retreat because the British had a whole lot more big ships than they did, and so the Germans basically were bottled up in their harbor and were not able to break this blockade. Yeah. And the blockade was as as mm. as Jennifer and Michael said, the blockade was strangling Germany. And it's, it's really lighter ships you want as surface raiders to attack merchant shipping. So you can have your, your light cruisers there to go in and take out convoys or take out stragglers and lone groups. Um, but it, the, the bigger ones, are, the bigger ships are simply fighting as a projection of power, state against state. Okay, have that, that useful little diversion there. Let's go back to the question I asked you, right? Which is the tactics that they use against submarines. So, you, so basically what you're saying, up to 1917, when the Americans entered, coherent anti-submarine tactics hadn't really been developed. They're still... Yes, I, th I think it's also the, the nature of the patrol hasn't been developed properly. That, as I understand it, that the uh, corvettes or the frigates or the sloops or whatever you have, the destroyers, will have a fixed patrol. So the U-boat commander simply knows, okay, down periscope, let's go down to whatever depth. The patrol vessel is gone. He's doing a rectangular patrol or whatever. He won't be back for another couple of hours. We can surface and we can see what's within our... Uh, okay, so, so yeah, this, let's move this on, right? Mm. America's into the war, right? What changes, like, what tactics are used? What tactics are effective in, mm. in dealing with the U-boats? I think it, it's going off in, in all, being able to patrol off a set path and to be able to find a target and go for it in a kind of hunter-killer way, I think. That's my understanding. Well, no, no, no. I think, I, think the big, no I think the big thing is, I think this is actually, the, mm. I, I think that uh, was the... Royal Admiralty had this idea of offensive mind. It's just like the Western. It's like the Western Front. You got to be. You can't be defensive, and so they wanted to hunt and kill, uh, and uh, and that felt really good and offensive. But actually, as Michael just said, the best thing, the only thing, submarines to do is just go down and wait for the guys to pass over. What they did was they formed convoys, and convoys is as old as like you know the Romans convoyed. You know, the Spanish, the Spanish, everybody convoyed. And convoying hadn't been introduced to the First World War because they had these kind of blinkers and they hadn't, and it's just like what's happening with machine guns and poison gas and everything. It's like the technologies move so fast that they're not really thinking. And, and again, in retrospect, it seems pretty bloody obvious. Why don't you, you, you move to a convoy system? And they basically, they're, they're kind of forced into this. And these destroyer, small, fast, American warships give them the capability to convoy merchant ships and then later troop ships. So, is the American contribution crucial here? Do they up the game then, the anti submarine game? Well, I, I make the point, yeah. maybe yeah. John's moving on to it there, that without the destroyers, you can't have convoy escorts okay. moving as fast as, as you would like to right. keep the ships in whatever pattern. Because the convoys yeah. are, are, are move so fast yeah. that the submarines, because submarines move really slow. 
So the reason submarines attack on the surface is they move a lot faster. Under, underwater, submarines are really slow. So if you have a fast-moving convoy, actually it's moving too fast for okay, a submarine to get a good shot at it. Okay. I want to get the other table yes. in here. Yeah. Michael, uh, the other Michael here. <laughs> yes. So there were other tactics used. There were other tactics used, uh, you know, even long before the Lusitania, and the tactics that were employed by Britain, uh, but she made a strategic decision uh, to position her grand fleet uh, to the blockading of the North Sea, you know, north of uh, England, Scotland, and, and, and in the Channel. Um, and then she decided that she would have a strategy for what they called the home guard or the home front. So they employed the use of trawlers, yachts, fishing boats, and armed some of them. And there was a survey undertaken in the Royal Navy about ideas for just what we're talking about, how do you counteract uh, submarines. And there was hundreds of suggestions came in, all sorts of things like, you know, get a, get a ship to tow a plane above so that they think there's a plane and they won't come to the surface. Um, they even tried this one. They used the trawler to tow a British submarine uh, twice. Uh, they towed. They were actually towing a, a submarine beneath the waves. Looked like it was a fishing boat. Submarine comes to the surface, and the um, British submarine is deployed uh, to engage with it. Um, but I suppose one of the most impactful um, strategies they had was the development of the Q ship or the Q boat. Uh, some people think it was, they were called Q because they were associated with Queenstown, because they were fitted out here, but they were fitted out in other places too. And essentially what Q ships were was ordinary, uh, we say, uh, cold cargo ships or trawlers, or they could be uh, coasters, and they would be brought into places like the dockyard uh, open passage here, and they would be modified. And Instead of having a wheelhouse, they would have something that looks like a wheelhouse, but there was a three-inch gun in behind that. And they had them all rigged up so that what looked like deck machinery up forward would be another gun. And on the, they'd go out on the high seas, looking like a coal ship, moving like a coal ship. Submarine would come to the surface, hoardings and boardings would fall down, and they'd engage with them. Surprise, surprise. surprise. And, and that, that went well. Then they developed that a little bit further on. Um, I suppose what was in, integral to this was that they were using the flags of neutral nations on these ships too. And there was one occasion on the Lusitania when the US ambassador to Great Britain saw them taking down uh, the British flag and running up a Spanish one or an American one. Um, so what they developed after was they this developed... Is not, this is not cricket, though, is it? Really? No, it's not really. The British wouldn't call it cricket. But I suppose where it came to lunacy with the... Well, not lunacy, I suppose. It was all very serious. But uh, Q-ships then, uh, they developed a particular type of training for their crews. Uh, they had to look unseamanlike. So they were allowed to grow beards. And, you know, it, it never would, would have been tolerated in our Navy, in the Irish Navy. Um, but what they used to do was they used to train them in what they called panic tactics. So the idea was this ship would be moving, submarine would come to a surface, they'd almost invite the submarine to torpedo it, their holes would be filled with lumber, the idea that if there was, that it would be still floatable, and the crews were trying to run around as if they were in a panic and in despair, and actually get into lifeboats within full view of the submarine, who would then proceed to maybe try and sink the ship, and it's at that point when the lifeboats were gone, seemingly with these panicked civilians, that crews that were laying down beneath um, would come up, pull the hatch, gun would turn around, and uh, they'd torpedo, or they would fire on the submarine. And there were numerous submarines, and one particular commander operating out of uh, a Q ship out of 
Cork Harbour here, uh, they sunk uh, a German submarine, I think it was the U-39, uh, up off the southwest coast, and they got a VC because there were no survivors. 38 of them uh, were killed. So there comes a point when Germany may well be able to say, we don't know from the flag on a ship, from the type of a ship, uh, from, from the movement of a ship, whether it's actually going to attack us or not. So these are the sort of things that contributed, you know. So, so this in terms of the Q ship too, it's like, <laughs> you, can see, you can see its appeal to English public school boys. There's dress up. There's actually cross-dressing. You should dress like like the like the captain's wife and stuff. And Only from the waist up, John. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's play acting, there's bravery. It's total. As Michael would say, it was boys' own stuff. You know, but uh, so most probably about two thirds of submarine uh, a ship sunk by submarines were surf or used to happen after the submarine would surface, give them a warning, and give them time to get off. And then they would usually use a little deck gun to sink them, or they'd have even row over with a sat with a scuttling charge and put it on board. They scuttle it. So the Q ships, great, worked for worked for a couple weeks. You know, they sank a few a few ships. Very few. Yeah, very rel relatively very few. Yeah, very few. And a whole lot of the Q ships got sunk. But the big thing was it totally incentivized no warning submarine attacks. So all of a sudden, Germans, the Germans had been punished for acting in a in a relatively chival you know chivalrous manner where you surface, you give them time to get off and what have you. And they had been sunk while doing that. So they were incentivized to no longer surface and just to no, no warning attack. And that's how a whole lot of people died. And just clarify something yeah. here, right? These no warning attacks, would the submarine have to surface? No. Or would it just fire off a torpedo? You, you, don't, you don't even see it. So you're just cruising along and all of a sudden this you're a, struck and, you, and you go point, right down. point to make there is that yeah. at, at times off the, the southwest coast of Ireland in the period we're looking at, the U-boats have the waters to themselves. There's lightkeepers reporting they see surfaced U-boats attacking. They attacked that merchant ship. Then he went over and he took that one out, took that one out, and then uh, submerged and fired torpedoes at whatever. So the, the, the lack of protection from the Royal Navy is not there, and arguably in some of the periods as well from the American Navy, it's not there. There's time, there's, I think it's the Skull Martin lightship, the South Rock lightship off the Northeast coast, um, the, the Irish Sea, where the light, uh, the, the keeper of the, the, the lightship records six ships sunk by the same U-boat within maybe three hours. And you know that gives you a sense of the, the intensity of, of, of that. The, the city, the city of Cork Steam Packet Company, mm -hmm. which ran cross-channel uh, steam, you know, services, passenger, mail, and what have you. So it had six vessels. They were all sunk in about five months. Mm -hmm. About 200 merchant sailors from Cork City were, were killed, and it's all same thing in a very short period of time. And it's, you know, Miz and Head, there's a, a fight like this goes on between a U-boat and a couple of. Uh, merchant ships were sunk, and then the war signal station at Browhead and Mizzenhead, they're in telephone contact, and they say, now he's beginning to shoot at us. And the U-boat is firing shells at the Mizzen fog signal station and at Browhead signal station. So they, they were able to act with absolute impunity. In the, uh, but it goes uh, back to what you were saying earlier. Admiral Bailey uh, bitterly complained about mm -hmm. the lack of resources that he had, and we all like to think that Queenstown was a very important, big, you know, naval port, but in the, the first two years of war, there was nothing here, mm -hmm. you know. Well, let's, 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 let's get on to the really important thing here, right, which is uh, Queenstown and Cork, right? Um, like, the, the, the United States entered the war in, in April, and within a month, on this exactly 100 years ago, they, they arrive in Cork. How much are we talking about? What's, in terms of quantities, I heard Damien Shields on the radio this morning talk about 6,000 sailors. I mean, where did they put them all? They had about, so they, 
the destroyer fleet was about 40, about 40 destroyers, maybe 50. Um, some of them got moved uh, when they started bringing over troop ships over to France. So the destroyer fleet kind of went in and out. Um, they, were a few, they also brought over a bunch of small patrol, anti-submarine patrol boats, which were off, stationed off of passage. Those were really ineffective, and they weren't really, they were, actually, they couldn't use them for convoy. They were kind of useless. They also had a small submarine fleet of about eight or ten submarines in Bearhaven. They also had three battleships in Bearhaven called the Bantry Bay Squadron, the, the Oklahoma, Nevada, and Utah, which were all... That's Oklahoma and, that gets done in, in and Pearl Harbor. They all, they all get done in Pearl Harbor. Oh, Nevada's, actually, Nevada has a pretty storied career in World War II. Um, and then, then you also had the naval air stations in Wexford, um, uh, here in Ada, and, and in uh, Woody Island, and also up in Donegal. So, so if, John, just to make this clear, yeah. so the bulk of the naval resource that the United States committed was in this neighborhood. Yeah, and, and, okay. and in the county, I mean, so I, I say in the county, when you get the battleships in, you're probably, and then the, the, air, the air stations have about 2,000 sailors on them. I'd say you're talking about probably 10,000 Americans in the, just in the county, and probably in the in, in nationally you're probably talking about 15 total. I'd say guess that's that's a guesstimate. So how many how many forget about the Americans for a second. How many sailors were 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 uh, operating from this this neighborhood? I'm talking about from say Wexford over to to to, to Whitty. I'm just saying, you see, there's six. I mean, uh, Damien threw the figure of six thousand. I mean, what do you think, Damien? American arrivals. Damien, right? what, do you, what do you think? What would you guess? Many, many, many. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say, I'd say it's somewhere like with Royal Navy. No, I'm just saying, many Royal Navy personnel were located here before the Americans arrived. Oh, Michael, you'd, you'd probably have a better idea. Yeah, than that. There would have been very small numbers uh, based here, really, in Royal Navy vessels, because there was very few of them. Yeah, um, right. And, I mean, there, there, was, there was a squadron, there was a squadron that was um, operating on the approaches to the Bristol Channel yeah. off the south coast. That included, of course, HMS Juno. And they would have been operating out of the Queenstown Command, but they were deployed mostly to the, the western approaches. They would have had... 400 men on each of them, okay, and there so were the five get, of them. What I get at is the American arrival is a huge influx of personnel, right? Yeah. Because so, yeah. I, wa I wanted to get on just the, the, the effect on the on the local uh, community. Uh, Damien, maybe if you get the, the mic to Damien there, uh, because Damien, I, I just saw we, we were at the launch of your uh, exhibition up in the Sirius uh, Gallery up there. I'm trying to put this delicately, the, the genetic footprint <laughs> that these American sailors left. Yeah, well, it, it's it's an interesting um, aspect of it that you know huge numbers of Cork women are walking out with these American sailors, and we, we don't know how many were doing that, but we do know that substantial numbers were actually marrying them, um, particularly out of Cork and Queenstown. They're the two biggest numbers. But for for everywhere where there was an American base in Ireland, at least one woman marries an American serviceman. So up and down the length and breadth of the country, they're doing it. Um, and John has done work on, on like the extreme social issues that are created uh, as a result of the Americans um, being here because the Americans, it's something that you see actually repeated in Northern Ireland during World War II, yeah. that this idea yeah. of uh, overpaid, oversexed and over here is, is a big one, that they're, they're all exceptionally, um, you know, John, you've been here a few years. You still haven't been smacked. <laughs> the only thing I'm saying is, no, I'm kidding. You're not overpaid. You're not overpaid, John. 
but uh, they're, 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 they're being paid significant amounts of money. It was something we were, we were discussing a bit earlier, actually, this kind of this, this moral almost, the, the, the way you would socially interact with women wouldn't necessarily yeah. have been the same in you know, early 20th century Catholic Ireland as it might have been in Manhattan. <laughs> so uh, th there was this, uh, and of course then the, the, the issues, the political issues that, that were around the country. I mean, you see consistently uh, the Americans, and the Americans are writing letters home that are being published in their local newspapers, and it's been said in the memoirs, and a lot of them are saying, these people aren't really into the war. I actually came across one letter written um, by, by one of the Americans who was down on the Bushnell, which was, was um, where the, the submarines were docking in Bantry. And he, he was of the impression, so anti were the local population to the war, in his opinion, that it was a former German base that the Americans had captured and taken over. And this guy was <laughs> serving in Bantry. So, so there, were, there was all of these different things playing in. So uh, ultimately, you, you have the, these violence outbreaks, particularly in Cork City. Um, where not only the sailors, but the women, the local women who were, who were going out with them are being attacked, and it leads to the, to the Cork. Is, uh, this, to is, the, this, is this political or is it testosterone? It's a weird, it's a weird, it's a weird mix. It's, it's, it's kind of, so what I, I kind of go back and forth a little bit on it. Um, it's a combination of a, of a few things. There's almost certainly, although it's hard to get the records for it, so certainly there's a, an, an upswing in prostitution, and the prostitution is visible. That's probably part of it. There's also people hooking up publicly, and that's also very apparent what's going on. So a lot of people are, are getting together. There's probably also some uh, hooking up that might be kind of halfway to prostitution, or, you know, presence exchange, what have you. Um, but there's also um, fear. There's a total moral panic, as kind of Sarah Buckley, I see in the back, could talk to you, could tell you about what different aspects of morality, especially the fear of contamination. And then the kind of also in the mix here is um, the uh, fear of venereal disease. And so there's a big, there's legislation brought in about venereal disease uh, prevention through jailing of women who infect sol uh, soldiers and sailors. And that seems to have really kind of sparked a panic. This kind of, there's a big round of it in September and there's a second round of it in March, 1918. And in March, what's interesting is the exact same thing happens in Limerick, except in Limerick, all the angst is directed towards Welsh soldiers of the local regiment in Limerick. While in Cork, the angst is directed towards the Americans and the women, and British soldiers who are dating local Cork women are unaffected. And British soldiers seem to have participated in some of the attacks on the Americans. <laughs> so it's so it's so it's just, it's, yeah, especially <laughs> so and it's so it's this weird social mix and, and it's anxiety and there's also the sense that the war might be in law. It's 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 all these things going on and and as kind of Jennifer was talking about too, like that's the whole thing with the war. It's all these different social economic pressures kind of coming in and people are just really stressed and they're acting out in ways and that are kind of un, uh, about anxiety is causing a lot of panic and it become, can become so, violent. Jennifer, can I bring you in there just to, uh, on a comparative thing? Is this sort of thing happening elsewhere? You know, uh, the, uh, in terms of, you know, moral panics about local women being corrupted by... Oh, yeah. Right. It happens basically everywhere. Right. I mean, there's uh, really interesting stuff about when... Um, so when the, this large British Imperial Army are occupying um, Jerusalem, for example, there's um, 
there's a really interesting uh, absolute panic about uh, prostitution venereal disease and between different communities. So the Arab community are up in arms about, you know, what what's happening to our girls and the Jewish community are doing the exact same thing and having, um, you know, huge arguments like this. And then there's this, um, you have the leadership going, we have to, and it's got extra layers because you're in the holy city. And so there's this whole thing where the, the guy who becomes eventually the British military governor of Jerusalem is like, we have to move all the prostitution outside of the old city and I could make it nice and holy. And so there's also this idea that maybe we can control all of this and we can control what's going on. But then you have the local communities who are coming to the military governor in the occupied city going, this is not okay. They're corrupting our girls and you know they're not safe and there's all these you know lewd men and blah 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 um, and then you also have there's so much worry amongst the command of what the soldiers are going to do that they don't actually let the um officers can move around but they don't actually let the regular soldiers into into the city so and um, you have all these stories of like other soldiers kind of trying to go to vantage points where they can't get a bit of a look because they can't go over the walls and you have this happen over and over again um throughout um, occupied areas and throughout areas of combat. So, you know, in France, for example, you know, you've got fighting going on for, you know, a very long time and you have, um, you know, you have formalised kind of brothels in some areas and then you also have fears on the behalf of, of again, like of locals. Because if you have most of the men have gone off to fight and you still have, um, like, villages that are mostly women and old guys, mm. you know, what, what are people worrying about? They're absolutely worried about what happens when right. these foreign troops yeah. come through here who are billeted nearby and what are they going to do? It has to be said, too, that it wasn't just about genetic footprints or morality. <laughs> there were other impacts. You know, there was a great business boom when the Americans uh, were here in, in Cove. Uh, they built a hospital uh, out at White Point, and they say in, 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 their, um, in their papers on it, a little hospital, it was 145 beds, which was a huge hospital for this area at this time. And it was the first hospital built by the uh, United States Navy where they brought it with them. It was a kit-built hospital. And it's very historical for them uh, that the, the first one was located here. And when they were finished, they disassembled it and took it off again. And there were times during the period that they were here that they confined shore leave to the Cove area, that, there was, that the, the ship's captains were worried about morality in Cork City, and they were confined to Cove. Uh, that suggests, of course, that the morality of all the women in Cove was absolutely perfect. Good question based on that. Um, in Foynes during the Second World War, when the American intelligence agents were coming in and out through the, the seaplane bases and the pilots and so on were there, the local population took on American lingo, they took on American slang, the men started wearing Clark Gable mustaches, a taxi is a cab in Foynes to the mm. present day. Is there anything similar like that in the Cove? Well, Local I'm probably the tongue. wrong man to ask, uh, yeah, since well, I'm just in over the bridge. I'm only here 47 years, by the way. <laughs> well, actually, that, that, that brings me to the point I was just about to make, just to the audience. Uh, I did say you, you are expected to do a bit of work here, guys, so uh, if anyone has a question, yeah. Just, and if you're, just wait for the, uh, the, the radio mic. Um, where is the radio mic? Damn, it's, it's there. there. It's just <laughs> over there. <laughs> just pass it over. It's kind of love this teamwork. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I need the mic. <laughs> Just um, two questions, one for John and then one for either of the mics. Um, I think, John, I was actually in the, the Emigrants Museum in Bremen last week and we're very proud of the volume of Irish people that emigrated to America. Mm. Ten times the volume uh, in the years up to the war emigrated from the United States, or sorry, from Germany to the United States. So that could have had a bearing that 
very high percentage of the population in the United States prior to 1914 were of German descent. The, 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 the big anti-war voices ethnically were German Americans, which, as you said, very big, especially in the Midwest, and Irish Americans. Absolutely. Publics, so, yeah, yeah, because of the thing. Yeah. But the question I really want to ask is, uh, has there, and as an ex-merchant uh, Navy man, um, has there ever been research done? I mean, we read figures like 700,000 tons of shipping per month. Now, if you take the average size of a ship, we'll say 7,000 tons, which is probably a big ship in those days. So that's 100 ships per month by 32 crew, of 35 crew or 40 crew. So that's 40, uh, 100, 4,000 per month being sunk. With the unrestricted warfare, uh, the navies under Admiral Bailey's orders were not to stop to pick up survivors because of fear that the submarine was in the area. Was there ever, uh, is there any record of how many merchant ships were sunk, how many merchant shipping uh, seamen were lost? Because, you know, it annoys me a lot of the times when I see a lot of the commemorations happening in France and in Germany and different places, and there's absolutely nothing. There's no, it's like the Unforgotten War, mm -hmm. I think that was uh, said at the start. So mm -hmm. I'd be interested to know if there was any record kept. Though. Yeah, I, I've seen a whole variety of different figures, you know, tremendous figures and so on. And I suppose, um, you know, we were talking earlier on about uh, tactics that, that were used. I mean, the, the British uh, Admiralty in the beginning of the war instructed British merchant captains uh, that if they saw a submarine, they were to ram it. They were actually to ram it. So they began to use the merchant fleet as both weapons of war, and in a way brought civilians right onto the front line. And there was one misfortunate merchant captain uh, who attempted to ram a submarine uh, off the coast of France uh, early in the war, and was unsuccessful. He was taken off the ship, brought ashore to France, and shot uh, straight away. But the numbers are horrendous, because you must remember that the, at the time, uh, you didn't have air freight as such. Everything moved on ships, mail moved on ships, cotton moved on ships, uh, barbed wire, everything. So there was a huge number out there, and I've seen figures ranging from you know, 400,000 one month to 500,000 and so on. Um, I don't know myself of any one particular place, but there's very good uh, books have been put together about the number of wrecks, uh, particularly around the Irish coast, but I don't know if there's a comprehensive one, Mike, where you'd get them all. That's you know. the problem. Yeah. I was looking at figures from the Smithsonian uh, mm -hmm. on their website, uh, maps that show where sinkings took place, and I was honing in on where we're talking about tonight. And I know from Irish Lights records that sinkings took place there, they're not mentioned. So mm. I found it very hard to add up the figures, and there's, yeah. there's yeah. differing yeah. sets. It's huge and so you end up saying, oh, it's, it's like you're saying, it's, it's a ferocious amount of, of death. It's a, but you can't, you can't actually, it seems, systematically say mm. this figure, this figure, this figure, and also because it seems what classes and I think this is a, unfortunately an academic question when you're dealing with the, the life of merchant sailors being lost, it's oh, we'll only count ships above X tons. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're losing figures there. And when you're dealing with you know, one, one dead body taken from the sea is one man's family, one et cetera, et cetera. It's, 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 it's a much more uh, emotional matter than the, the, the mere st statistics indicate. So I can't answer the question and I wish I could it's one of the things that in doing the research for tonight and in some other papers I've given, I've never been able to track it down because the statistics seem to differ across the various sources, depending and on how they're it's not unusual. 
no, it's true. Yeah. Like across the First World War, yeah. um, depending, like, German records, are, it's really difficult to tell how many people died in, in certain battles, um, partly because their records weren't as well kept and partly because a lot of them were destroyed in the Second World War. But there's also the cap fact that they're all using these huge colonial armies, okay? So remember that uh, First World War is effectively in a war between multiple large empires, and they're all using colonial troops, and how well the records are kept varies immensely between, you know, say you're keeping quite good records of nice British boys from the Midlands, and you're not necessarily keeping as excellent records of your West African troops, for example, that you're using for various things. So there's there's actually there's so many the different labor, the labor crews, the labor the labor corps. There's all, yep, yeah. there are yeah. there's heaps of those. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, in yep. one account written by an admiral based here, Campbell in in Cove, um, he describes the loss of Lascars. And you know, Oriental or you know, um, Oriental or Chinese uh, sailors who were incorporated into a colonial army, almost as if they're you know not worthy of a mention. Um, to go back to just one other thing you mentioned, Michael, at the beginning was the the German emigration. There was huge. It was only after the longest congressional debate in history that America eventually enters the war. There's huge resistance um, to to entering the war in the United States, and much of that is coming from. Uh, properly elected senators of German origin who have concerns about it. And after the sinking of the Lusitania, there was an outcry in the American press about why British ships were carrying munitions and so on and so forth. So it wasn't all, you know, as easy as... And you've had longer congressional debates since, John, but that was the longest one in history at the time, the, four days. The, just in terms of the scale, the only thing... I, I read something in one of the court papers from maybe 1919, and they reported 6,000 survivors landed in Cove during the war from rep ships, 6,000. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big number. And, when you, and, when, as you, and exactly as you point out, they weren't, they, a lot of survivors weren't getting picked up because of, uh, especially in, in Irish waters, because the, when, when things really he, heated up. So yeah, we're talking about a whole lot of people. There's one shilling, one uh, report I remember from, I think the Conningbeg lightship, where the, the, the keeper on watch watches wreckage going by and he said, I, I reported the wood, I but I reported the lifeboat, with the, the life belt with the body in it floating past his lightship. And you know, these are people who are, who are lost or forgotten to history. Just, just in terms of, I, I, one of my friends uh, is from Kinsale and his dad kind of grew up uh, uh, in Kinsale during the Second World War and he said that <laughs> going home from school they'd always stop and get wreckage. Wreckage mm -hmm. was coming in every day. Oil, and you know, they knew there was oil, oil, you know, ship wreckage. So that all the coastal communities must have been getting a whole lot, especially in the 17th. Yeah. Mo Mossy Lorden in Kinsale has written a fabulous book about the wrecks off the south coast, you know, and he, he's identified, I think, more than anybody else. So, well, and it's a modern book, you know. Get in quick, Sarah. Um, yeah, I better. <laughs> um, just to pick up on John's point about uh, morality and the women, I'll just bring it in for a minute, but, and John's work has shown those clashes. Uh, between different groups of men and women, but I guess the context, there is a really large report on venereal disease in 1916, and they pinpoint all the reasons, and it's not the nicest reading, but it's quite interesting. And what actually happens is they say that there should be public lectures, there should be education, and all these different things. And in 1924, the Irish Free State decide to go the opposite way. So we also have the really interesting context of the First World War brings about a lot of social issues and how they are dealt with afterwards. But on the issue of the women, John has done work in this as well, but 
the kind of the grudgery around women and who they date, um, the separation women during the First World War have gotten a really hard go. And part of that is the allowance they got in some parts of the country was higher than the industrial wage. So in Galway, the separation allowance was higher than the industrial wage and women had never gotten that type of money on their own. Um, so I think these are just some of the issues that are going on and the kind of context there. Just on, the, sorry, just yeah. on, that, sir, on that question of uh, income, right? What kind of wages were these American sailors getting vis-a-vis I don't, I don't have British service man. So, so part, part of just going with what Sarah Ann was saying, um, elevated. So the war brings elevated social status to working people, and that's a that's a big cause of a lot of the social conflict, and especially when um, if you're supporting the war effort and you have elevated social status, so you're seen as above your station. So that's what a lot of this is about, and separation women and some of the dating with with American sailors or what have you. The Americans. I, I haven't read um, Sims's book. I forget what they're, they were getting, I think about 50 or 60% higher wages than the, than the Royal Navy, it was something like that. It was, mm. it, was a, it was a lot higher. The only other thing I'd say about the Americans who came over, especially initially, was um, they were regulars. They, were from, they, were, they weren't draftees, they weren't conscripts. So they were probably pretty rough. And they were, and they were uh, because the Americans had come in, as, as Jennifer was saying, the Americans kind of mm. came in from just went right in uh, with, with a military that was relatively small. Um, they hadn't, up, they hadn't uh, upscaled their Navy yet. So the first folks coming in through the first months would have been people who would have been career These are old, Navy. old salts. Old salts. Right. And, and they would have been well paid and they were, and would have been used to kind of port cities around the world. And, and Cove, and one of the reasons there probably wasn't a lot of conflict here in Cove also was Cove's a port city, it's a port town. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a liberty town. So they're used to this. Mm. And it's when you're kind of uh, dropping in a bunch into, into, into places where they're not used to rambunctious sailors and big numbers and big ship crews going off that you're getting a lot of the, the aggro. Anybody else want to come in there? Yeah, just uh, use the radio mic, sir. Hmm? Just pass it forward. Okay, you, he has the mic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yes, we've indulged you. You have the mic. Nine-tenths of the law. It's yeah, it's a, a question for John, really. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, that, that, that weird mix you were saying about testosterone and territory and stuff. Uh, how about nationalism and Sinn Féin, this conflict between yeah. Navy and us? So, the, so what happened, so this, I, I wrote about this. Uh, what seems to happen was that there was kind of, the Catholic Church was very much opposed to this and, and, and you know, famously here, you know, the, in the cathedral, uh, the, the Americans were, were called vultures of good Irish womanhood, and a bunch of American officers who were attending mass walked out, and that was kind of recorded. Um, the Republicans, or people who were independence-minded, seemed to have joined in whatever the vigilance campaign was and kind of took it over, and they were, they were shouting kind of pro-German slogans. So it was, you had a couple other examples where, so, so in Cork also, a couple months previously, there had been a pro-recruiting play put on, um, not the Everyman, I forget what, what theater, and it was about, it was supposed to be about Michael O'Leary, VC, and it was, <laughs> I'll give you, the, the, the plot was basically that he had, uh, he had a, a sweetheart who wouldn't marry him because he was, a, uh, he was in the British Army, she became a nun in Holland, and uh, 
uh, you know, because because she, she she lost her love, and then he was with the Munster Fusiliers, and she just as her convent was overrun, and they were all slaughtered by the Huns, and Michael O'Leary came and chased them off, and 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 he died, she died in his arms, saying, "Tell the boys in Ireland we need more troops," and so uh, so the Catholics, the Catholic, the Catholic authorities in Cork were outraged that you would portray vocations that way. Because nobody gets a vocation. It's, it's coming from God. It's not coming from <laughs> the fact that a fallen love affair. So they organized a demonstration against the play. But when the demonstration happened, the Republicans were all there. And it became a huge thing against recruiting. And they kind of ripped the place up and booed and, and what have you. And the play had to cancel. That seems to have been hap what happened with the, with the demonstrations the, the, against the Americans, was that there's some kind of vigilance campaign organized probably by, by, the, by, by parish priests, and then the Republicans just used it as an opportunity to express really strong anti-government feelings. And during this period in Cork, you had riots, street riots, uh, that almost always targeted the recruiting office, the courthouse, or local police stations, or the prison, pretty much every, every three or four weeks. There was one. So this was what seemed to have been, so it's all these things, and then it comes out as, let's try to burn down the recruiting office again. And so, and so that was kind of the... But, but both <laughs> the, the American yeah. and the British admiral, admirals here, stationed from 17 to, uh, to, to 18, spoke disparagingly about the local Sinn Feiners. And uh, they were very conscious of the fact that, and worried about uh, the Q-ships or other vessels uh, being modified uh, in dockyards here because of the, you know, the problem with <coughs> intelligence and espionage and so on. And they both uh, are, I suppose, very, very um, disparaging about um, the Sinn Féin presence here. Now, I, I think in many ways, there wasn't as many people as they thought there were, you know, um, because public meetings that had been held uh, prior to 1916 showed very small numbers, really. Uh, but they viewed it as a real and present danger, you know. They thought they were signaling the Germans. They yeah. were convinced, they were convinced the Republicans yeah. were signaling the Germans and, and signaling ship uh, things. The big thing uh, with the, uh, with uh, there was at Rushbrook Shipyard, there was a, a police report in 1918 where they the Admiralty demanded that they dismiss all the shinners from Admiralty mm. uh, from the, the shipyard, and the head of the shipyard comes back and says, "Well, you might as well close the shipyard because they're mm -hmm. all shinners." <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, there's, but so by 1918, it's a lot different than it was yeah. had been in 19 yeah. early yeah. 17. Michael here, to what extent did naval intelligence break the German naval codes? And what effect did this have on the sea war on to the Western approach? Well, there's a great deal of criticism about, well, first of all, it, it, there was a, a submarine captured, a German submarine captured early in the war, and the Russians um, got a hold of it and passed over the um, code machine, if you like, uh, to the Royal Navy. And uh, it's interesting to read, uh, I was reading an account of uh, the British Admiral here saying how efficient uh, British intelligence was, but there was a deliberate, a very deliberate uh, policy of not revealing their knowledge of the code, when in reality, they knew when the submarine was leaving you know, uh, Germany. They knew what supplies they had on board. They knew what their route was. None of this was revealed uh, to uh, the merchant ships that were, were coming across, or indeed to their own. 
And the biggest criticism uh, in the first two and a half years of the war is the, I suppose, the slowness with which people were advised of intelligence that they had that were days old. Uh, so the impact uh, was all intelligence is valuable, all information is valuable, you know, and the most valuable information is that which is gathered in peacetime, believe it or not. But that was held uh, in a fairly conservative uh, intelligence section in, in, in the Admiralty uh, as being a good thing just to have it. The use of that intelligence was heavily criticized because there were many, many ships sunk and had they notified them of the submarine in the area and what it was doing, possibly could have been avoided, but it would have been very soon after that uh, that the Germans would have realized our cords are gone, so let's do it. So it's that Dan kind of, of Yeah, Danzig didn't have it, but there was a lot of criticism about the um, Admiralty intelligence uh, at the time. And you have to know what to do with it. I mean, you can have all the intelligence in yeah. the world, you can't interpret yeah. it, it's worthless. Yeah. Hi, just, I'm not sure who may have the answer to these questions, but just on the, if anyone has any knowledge of the requ requirements for the civil pop civic population for, say, sur coastal surveillance. Um, I know prior to the Americans arriving that the RIC were regularly reporting sightings off the west coast, the Cork coast of submarines. Michael Kennedy may have answered that in terms of the lighthouse keepers were obviously reporting back, I'm not sure whether there are any requirements or reporting lines uh, on those. And But also, uh, after the Americans arrived, uh, I think maybe even in 1918, I know that while the, the British authorities are declining to prosecute Sinn Feiners for marching and breaking all the defense of the realms, farmers in West Cork are being, are being prosecuted under defense of the realms for burning fires at nighttime. I'm not sure whether that's fear of aerial attack or any... Uh, Naval knowledge or pa passing up enemy ships. I'd imagine, I'd imagine that, that they thought they were being used for navigation or for signaling. There was a big, there was a big kind of myth that that Republicans were signaling and communicating with with German submarines, which was false. Um, and but that was the, yeah. And you have to know what the signal means. You know, simply putting a fire on a headland means nothing if you don't know what it's meant to be there for. Uh, the lighthouse keepers. The Coast Guard, who we, we haven't mentioned at all, and who are a very, their, their records have been mainly destroyed, I understand, uh, are working hand in hand with the Admiralty. It's basically a, a troika guarding the coast at, at this period. And lightkeepers are given specific instructions to report uh, sightings and to aid merchant shipping. And this ends up in the, the middle, uh, April 1917, with the sinking of the Arctic lightship by a U-boat, which is one of the, I suppose, more, more heinous acts of the war, leading to the wonderful uh, telegram, because the Admiralty don't want to disclose this, uh, that simply says, the Arctic lightship has disappeared. So the, the lightkeepers are involved in this war of surveillance around the coast as well, very much. I mean, Jennifer, isn't it, there's also a lot of that kind of myth about um, people signaling on the trench warfare in the French and, and Belgium about uh. Yeah, well, there's myths about this sort of thing everywhere. I mean, like, you, you have quite hilarious panics in, in England where you have people who are just artists, like people who like to hobby sketch or do watercolours, mm -hmm. and you have panicked locals reporting them to the police because they're convinced their watercolours are, in fact, coded, um, you know, military spying mm -hmm. um, documents, effectively. So this sort of thing happens all over the place. There are spy panics. There are spy panics in Canada where they believe that there are German spy planes flying overhead and people are signaling them and all this sort of stuff, and it's not happening. So this is, this is something that happens all over the place in a number of guises. And just over time here, um, 
I want to just move on to just to wrap things up here. Um, and I'll, I'll take a few, if there's any more questions, we can, we can take those before the end as well. But just uh, how successful was this counter UVO campaign in the end? I mean, uh, Michael, you, you, were, you were outlining what they didn't do. I mean, did they get their act together eventually? They did, but they didn't know it at the time would be one way of looking at it. And again, it comes back to the question of figures, how much shipping is being sunk. The convoys work, the destroyers work, the uh, airship patrols work, work to an extent. Again, those Smithsonian maps I looked at, when you look at where the sinkings are, they move from the southwestern approaches up into the Irish Sea in, in 1918. The amount of sinkings does seem to decline. But although the Allies win the war at sea in 1917, I think it's in, in Lloyd George's war memoirs where he said, we didn't know it at the time, the threat remains. So I suppose they, they are successful, but um, they, the awareness of this takes time to well, sink in. To develop the question a little bit further mm. then, but the overall naval strategy of the Allies is successful because they starve Imperial Germany yeah. in, into submission. Yes. Essentially. Well, but they also get they also get two million American soldiers to France without losing a single man. What and do they? What do and they so, do? And, and that swings. And that swings. That. What do they that, do when they get there, though? I mean, that breaks the morale of the Germans. They don't. They don't actually do that much on the battlefield, but it totally breaks the German morale. You were saying that. I mean, the, yeah. That the, on, on land, the American contribution is pretty pretty small. Well, yes, but like it, it completely changes the calculus for the Germans. Mm. So basically, you know, in 1917, yes, the U.S. entered the war the war, they haven't turned up yet, but um, the Germans begin to think we need to get certain things squared away before the Americans show up. So, you know, luckily for them, there's the October Revolution and, you know, then the, the Russians are out of the war. And so then the first thing they do is they start sending troops as fast as possible to the, west, to the Western Front. Western. Absolutely, and it's, but it's fascinating. Though, it, makes that, no, it makes no difference. Well, yes and no, because what, what, what they do is they decide that they need to have the decisive breakthrough now. And yeah. that's why they launch the spring offensives beginning in March 1918. And what they do is they have like, an, you know, highly mobile attacks, um, which actually massively stretch their supply lines and are incredibly... Um, they, they are initially very, very successful, but it's at enormous cost to their army. Um, so two things happen there. One is that they exhaust themselves, they have huge losses, and um, so that's going on. And the second thing is, yes, the morale of those German troops goes down massively because it's because during the spring offences when they overrun, say, French positions, and they um, they take their provisions, they realise how much more stuff this was like Europe they have. Island, right? They yeah. well, they realise yeah. how much they are starving in yeah. Germany, how much yeah. worse back, they have it when they come back. across the wine rations of the French soldiers that they've left when they've run away. Okay, well, this you brings know? me to my final point, right? Because we 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 need to focus a bit on the on the issue of sexual morality, right? The broader question of the morality of this war, right, and, and, the, and the naval war in particular, because, uh, you know, to the average person, you know, the idea of unrestricted U-boat warfare against uh, all shipping seems immoral, right? But what's the difference between that and starving a whole civilian population into submission? Well, I would suggest that there's very little difference in it. And, uh, I mean, President Woodrow Wilson um, would have said at the time, he has no difficulty with a submarine attacking a ship, be it merchant or otherwise. Uh, if they're bringing contraband or arms or munitions, you know, to your enemy's ports. What he did have a problem with was that the submarine uh, isn't capable of bringing passengers to safety. You know, he felt it was okay to attack those, but it wasn't okay not to look after the innocent civilians that were on that. So 
for the German response to that would be, of course, well, you know, we can't get our bigger ships out there, so we don't have the capacity to take people on board. What do we do? Do we let the munitions pass us by? So you had that problem. And it's like today, uh, I hope I don't offend anybody, uh, but having served in a conflictual part of the world myself, it doesn't matter how you die, really. You know, there's horror at somebody being beheaded. But believe me, you know, 55 millimeter shells coming into a village uh, somewhere in the Middle East will decapitate people, you know, uh, no, no problem. It's just the pers person of it. So to answer your question, um, is one uh, as moral as the other? I don't think so. I, don't, I think what you're saying. It may be something psychological, and I'm going off on a tangent mm. on this, that we can envisage the horror of drowning through our own experiences, but the, mm. the horror of slow starvation may be something that is, is, is a little bit different and that mm. the those of us who live along the coast know what the sea can uh, bring ashore, and it, it, it can be pretty horrific at times. Maybe there's an element of that in the back. But also, hardly, it's not like it's only the Germans who are starving. Well, Actually, they're less starving than their allies. So part of the problem the Germans have is they also have to prop up their allies. It's the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire who are collapsing at a faster rate than they are. There's full-on starvation in Vienna. There's proper famine in the Ottoman Empire. So all of this is going on at the same time. And actually, so the Germans' problem is partly, is partly that. And the other thing is that they think they're going to get a whole bunch of grain. So when they win in the east and they have the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Russians, they think we're going to take over all these um, areas in the east that are, you know, Poland and stuff that are full of grain. And we're going to be able to use this. And it's going to be brilliant. We'll have solved our supply problems. Only problem is that the locals are not giving it up. They're not interested in having the Germans coming in and requisitioning all their, all their grain, and they create a problem. So the calculus that the Germans are using to think about how we're going to supply ourselves and how we're going to win this war and how we're going to have enough stuff basically just doesn't work logistically. Mm. So, so they, all they, they gamble and they lose, essentially. So all of that yeah. stuff's going yeah. on at the same time. I, yeah. I think the thing with, I mean, uh, the psychological thing about submarine stuff is like, you know, all the sailors here can understand. That's like breaking a fundamental law of sea is leaving, leaving uh, somebody abandoning a, a, a sinking ship and not being rescued. That's like a, it's like almost like a fundamental law of the sea. Mm. And I think that's kind of what, I think that the submarine stuff was really, it was a psychological thing. Yeah. And that also, it also really kind of helped swing American public opinion, not just Lusitania, but it was, it was pretty, and, and the British were quite good at their propaganda about, about mm. kind of emphasizing uh, you know, not, not, not emphasizing everything else that was happening in other parts of the em empire, but really kind of just uh, honing in on this and, and kind of using it as a propaganda weapon to great effect. So all, all is fair in love and war, as I say. No, I'm going to have to wrap up. Uh, tell you what, okay, one, one last question, no, right? I'm, I'm just the historians, I just... Yeah, hold on, just the, the radio mic there, guys, yeah. 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 To this, that, uh, the idea that you, you sink a ship, there's innocent people on board and they have no choice. But if you, if you starve a country, you know, over time, you have a choice. You have a choice either, okay, it's, it's, it's step by mercy, and you cry out mercy, and you say, okay, I'm going to change the regime. That's the idea. There's no, there's no choice for innocent people on, on the ship, but there is a choice for, for people in, in Germany to change the regime. That's, that's, that was this justification for, for the, the, the tax on, uh, or, uh, for the starvation of Germany. Okay, I'm going to wrap up there. Uh, we, will re we will be returning to this uh, topic in a slightly different form at our next uh, head school in the National Library in Dublin, which will be looking at Ireland and the United States, 1917 to Trump. And uh, John Borgonovo and uh, Michael Kennedy will be joining us on that particular panel. Uh, so I'd just like to thank uh, the rest of the panel here, Jennifer Wellington and uh, the other Michael, Michael Martin, 
uh, yourselves, the audience, in particular those people who contributed from the floor. I'd like to thank uh, Cove Library for, for this uh, fantastic uh, venue here, and uh, Florence on Sound, thanks very much. Um, uh, so, uh, and by the way, if, if uh, any of your friends and neighbours couldn't make it here tonight, let them know that there is a podcast which will be up on the History Island website uh, in a day or two. So I hope to see you at the next Hedge School. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael.